Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And here's the twist, right? Not just because probability dictates that you're not going to be the next Elon Musk. So it's <laughs> yeah. useful to get your, get your mind straight on that. But also because I actually think that the more okay you are with the life you have and with ordinariness and with not being a super achiever, the more sort of freed up psychologically you are to actually create amazingly impressive things, to really make a difference in some field, perhaps even to become a sort of one of these sort of stratospheric uh, gods of the civilization. I don't know. But just, you know, to, to think like, okay, I'm good enough as I am. I'm good enough if I don't ever do any of these things. And therefore, it's all extra, right? It's like a wonderful game that you can then play, sort of launch some cool projects and connect with some interesting people and take a few wow. risks, as opposed to on some subconscious level, I've got to do this or I'm not worthy to be a person on planet Earth. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This week, we conclude our series for Mental Health Awareness Month by discussing what it means to achieve success on your own terms. We'll redefine what success means to you and explore the importance of prioritizing your mental health and well-being on the path to achieving your goals. Oliver, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for asking me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your book, The Antidote, uh, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, at the recommendation of one of my former podcast guests. And uh, I, you know, I think as I told you when I emailed you, I really was intent on starting the year with you as our first guest, just because I felt that you had a very contrarian, but at the same time, practical view to the entire concept of self-help. Uh, before we get into all of that, I want to start asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Whoa, great question. I mean, I could, the, the first part is easy to answer. The second part will just have to come to me in the moment. Um, I'm not sure I've thought about it in those terms. My, my uh, parents both retired now, but my father um, ran a grant-making foundation uh, in, the, in the UK, uh, making grants in a whole different areas of uh, sort of um, charitable work. And uh, my mother worked in a variety of different roles, things to do with uh, housing, social housing, um, 
you know, getting getting houses for homeless people, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I guess I guess now you put it like that, it those are both pretty kind of um, pro social jobs if you see what i mean they're kind of um yeah. they're, they're kind of non-profity and uh and um community focused i have to say that's kind of i don't i think of myself as doing something more um slightly less i mean i hope my mm-hmm. work helps people but i think that it's i suppose it is a little more individualistic in a way uh maybe that's rebellion i don't know um yeah. I, I was raised uh then uh, the, the, the I was raised as a as a Quaker. If this is of any interest or relevance, my yeah, absolutely. My, um, and the uh, so my parents are Quakers, and the and the um, foundation that my father ran was uh, and is a Quaker foundation. And although I'm not sort of religious in any way at all today, unless you count being a sort of half-assed meditator as being a Buddhist, <laughs> um, then. Uh, but I do think there's there's a lot in the ethos of Quakerism that I really like. There's a down to earthness, simplicity, plainness as values, um, uh, sort of confronting truth and reality, and and uh, and sort of uh, kind of a noble ship as, uh, aspect to to that whole approach. Combined with, uh, I think, a sort of hopefully a concern for other people, but uh, I, I shouldn't really claim that of myself. I guess. <laughs> so I mean, what are the the values that you were brought up with that really shaped this perspective that you have, you know, particularly on, on success and sort of the world of, of self-help and personal development? I mean, it would probably take my therapist to trace the, uh, the, the detailed connections. But I think that, I mean, what I hope is my take on self-help and personal development is that like as you say not credulous not pretending that as individuals we can completely uh remake the world and you can just sort of choose to become uh incredibly wealthy and happy uh, on the flip of a coin with um with nobody else's uh cooperation but equally i hope it's not a kind of nihilistic cynical take like i'm i write about and talk about self-help the way i do because i do think that self-help at its roots is a is a positive and beneficial thing to have that, that we can grow and develop and there are exciting ways to sort of manifest our creativity and uh and be more productive and be better in relationships and all the rest of it all stuff that i struggle with by the way i think anyone who is in this space and pretends that that they're not <laughs> in it because of a personal struggle i mean you know everyone writes yeah, well, everyone deals with stuff because they're because they are enmeshed with it some way, right? Otherwise it would be boring to them, I think. Yeah, well, the joke among my listeners is that every guest here is basically a reflection of whatever problem I'm trying to solve in my life. I remember there was a period of, of probably a good two weeks where, or a month where, you know, we had nothing but relationship experts. So, you know, somebody on Facebook says, Trini, who's this week's dating expert? Uh, and it was true. I, absolutely every single person is a reflection of that. Uh, so one thing I wonder is, you know, what actually was the trajectory that led you down this path? You know, what advice did your parents give you about careers and, and making your way in the world? I mean, I think the truth about why I ended up doing what I was doing, which was, uh, you know, news and still is to a large extent, you know, newspaper journalism, journalism writing for for, for magazines and for and for publications was just the fact that, you know, a, a copy of The Guardian was on our breakfast table every day. And um, I had a sort of passion for something that 
resembled some, you know, ridiculous kid version of journalism from a very young age. I think I was kind of 10 when I was photocopying, making newsletters and forcing my schoolmates to, well, (laughs) not, not read them, but at least yeah. a- accept the piece of paper <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, and then uh, you know I, I sort of followed that through uh, all the way up to, to university sort of doing doing uh, sort of amateur journalism whenever I had the opportunity so it, that's the route really it's it's like journalism uh, and then yeah. I and then I sort of uh, landed eventually at the Guardian and it was there that I started writing columns on this kind of on this kind of material so I think in terms of family context and setting that is you know firstly uh the sort of value that that journalism and public communication is a is a valuable and useful thing in the world but also a kind of Mm -hmm. just the idea that like i could do it right that that Mm -hmm. writing stuff and photocopying it and trying to get other people to read it is a is a sort of you know that you should just sort of go for it i remember i always had a problem with uh the idea that you had to do things in a sort of a make-believe way that you could sort of that you had to sort of play at being a doctor or journalist or whatever i was wanting to like literally like make a publication and get real people to read it when i was uh when i was far too tiny for that to be uh appropriate and i see the same thing in my uh four-year-old son actually he doesn't he doesn't want to play at being an astronaut he's like no i want to really go to outer space so i don't know what, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that but it's uh maybe right, it's call give, give elon a call and see if he'll let him on one of the next spacex flights right well so so there's a lot of things here for, for i do want to come back to journalism in particular and media just because it's been such an interesting time in media particularly here in the united states but uh one thing i wonder is, is you know why is it that some people have that inkling at such an early age and somehow it gets nurtured in you know it manifests early in their life and it doesn't for a lot of other people um, and of course, you know, I think some people want to say, oh, well, I missed it. So what can I do now? Uh, so let, let's, let's start there. And also, I, you know, based on your accent, I assume you grew up in the UK. What differences have you noticed um, in the way that Americans are, are socialized, particularly in the context of growing up versus, you know, children uh, where you grew up? It's an interesting question. Yeah, I grew up in, in York in the north of England. Um, and now I live in New York City. Um I, I think that uh, I mean I, the main thing I, I, in the first part of your question is just that I think uh, you know my parents really did sort of uh, encourage me to do the thing. I mean it's a cliche, right? But I think I, there was there was not a sense uh, that I really should uh, you know become a, a specific thing, be a lawyer or a doctor, or to follow exactly in their footsteps or or anything like that, um, and for whatever reason that I still don't really understand the, 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 the thing that was there wanting to come out was, was doing, was doing journalism. It's kind of, uh, I've sort of evolved and adapted from there. You know, I kind of, I, I was in the interesting position of, of, of achieving something that I sort of had dreamed of since I was a tiny kid, namely a job at the Guardian, pretty young as these things go, which is both great and something to sort of hopefully doesn't sound too much like bragging but on the other hand it's kind of creates an interesting sort of a crisis as well right because uh, the target is uh is 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 removed like once you've sort of completed a goal you're like hang on i've got the i've got a career to figure out here the uh, the whole uh the whole way ahead of me britain versus america 
it's really hard to know the difference because between like kids being brought up in 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 the UK uh, and kids being brought up in the US because there's also this big time gap, right? I'm I'm coming at it as a as an adult, uh, yeah, and you know, not not a not a super young adult either in um in the US. So now I see and share a lot of the criticisms of this idea of people sort of being having their childhoods just completely uh, sacrificed to like getting in developing having a rounded cv you know having having enough of a resume to get into the very best colleges and stuff and it doesn't seem like a great way to live at all i really did have a certain amount of um you know you come home from you come home from school and you're just sort of like wandering around the streets with your friends doing aimlessly kind of uh but actually in all sorts of ways developing your friendships and your and your passions and your creativity without realizing it but that might have been because it was you know the 80s or the mm-hmm. the late 80s the early 90s rather than uh, that it was britain um i do see in and then just the other thing to say i think just quickly i do see at least among sort of relatively privileged people in the us though i don't think it's limited to that demographic you know a very strong idea that you can do the things that you want to do that that there will be a way um it's a cliche again it's the american dream i guess and it's taken a lot of taken a lot of knocks and had a lot of setbacks in uh in recent years but you i think that is clearer than in britain i think there is something i don't particularly love about the overall my mentality of britain which is that you just sort of have to settle with uh settle for uh whatever you seem to have on the other hand you know a certain amount of acceptance in life is uh, is very useful and uh, important because some things you some things you can't change yeah well <laughs> you know i think it's interesting you brought up you know sort of parents and, and overachievers because I, I think you know, i remember the first time i started coming across you know all this work on high performance you know malcolm gladwell's book dan coyle's talent code uh, and i remember asking dan coyle this he said you know like as a parent as, as somebody now i'm like oh why didn't my parents make me find something that i could practice for ten thousand hours and he's mm-hmm. like that's the worst possible thing you could right. do to a kid um, because, you know, they, and he said, he's like, this is why you end up with these child prodigies who actually don't become successful musicians and, and, you know, successful in their field later in life. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that, that sounds right to me. And it, and what it brings to my mind is that I've sort of given you a rosy picture. I, 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 um, I have, uh, none but the normal regular complaints about my parents. I think they did a, uh, I think they they are excellent people, but I did end yeah. up by the time I was sort of eighteen and going to college, like one of those kind of not a prodigy, but one of those kind of stressed out overachievers who is kind of it's the whole sort of fixed mindset thing, you know, this idea that um, I got really good grades all the way through, but I sort of felt like I absolutely had to, and I got pretty like I made myself kind of ill in a mild way when it came to university out of some notion that I was going to do terribly badly and needed to do really well. And, um, and then I did do really well, but like, was that worth it? I'm not, I'm still, I'm still not sure. Um, so that's sort of those sort of perfectionist tendencies that are not to do with wanting to create wonderful results, but this sense that you sort of, you're just trying to, meet the minimum level for acceptability and that this requires you to be a, a straight a student it's a it's a stressful way to live and i i think you know part of my 
journey since then has been uh, has been unclenching that grip and being a bit happier with um, uh, the ways in which you know you're not necessarily always going to um, make a sort of unbroken chain of successful results, and you kind of don't need to, and kind of that's not what people care about. So anyway, I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray, and I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? 
They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a perfect segue to actually getting into the antidote because I see so many interesting things in the world of self-help and, and you know, a lot of platitudes, right? It's like, oh, you can do anything you put your mind to. I'm like, no, that's not true. I'm like, I could put my mind to becoming the best NBA basketball player in the world and I'm a scrawny Indian. That's never going to happen. <laughs> um, but what I wonder is, you know, where does this come from first before we get into antidote? Like, why do we have this sort of delusional optimism that gets perpetuated? Because I mean, even Werner Earhart, the founder of the Landmark you know, Forum, actually told Dan Kennedy, you know, while they were talking to Barbershop, when Dan Kennedy said, sum up Est for me in one sentence, because I think at that time it was called Est, he said, it's simple. He said, we sell independence, but we breed dependence. And I thought, wait a minute, that's true of like nearly every self-help situation. I mean, that's how you end up with cults like Nexium. Right. That's a great, it's a great quote that I'd never heard. Um, and it, um, I did not realize he was quite that cynical about what he was doing. Um, or as cynical as that quote makes him sound anyway. I mean, I I think, uh, you know, zoom out, zoom out to the biggest, the longest term historical perspective, you know, in ancient Greece and Rome, what was called philosophy was intended in some way as self-help. There is the, the idea that people can, through writing and thinking and taking a conscious approach to their lives, make changes for the better, become wiser and happier. This is, this is a very, very old idea. And I, and I think it's true. And I think, I'm, I think it has done that for me. I think when you talk about like what happened primarily but not only in america primarily coming out of the great depression a real sort of and merging a bit with certain kinds of uh, uh fashionable approaches to sort of spirituality in the in victorian times and stuff you know you get this kind of um uh mix of stuff that really hyper individualizes the uh, the matter and i think you know there's a sort of there's an economic reading of this, isn't there? It's like this is this is what happens to the philosophy of ancient Greece and Rome under late capitalism, which is this very very individualized idea. This idea that you're responsible for everything you do, that you can create any result, but that if you fail, that must be because you were thinking insufficiently positive thoughts or you didn't have enough self discipline. You can see how it would be a very cheering message, at least. Um, superficially in in times like the great depression when it seemed like the the structures the the bigger structures that that people could previously depend on uh were were crumbling that the idea that you could just do it yourself that you didn't need that in order to uh have uh, an amazing life would would clearly that would have a have an audience and i think some of what you get in the kind of self-helpy side of the culture today especially in a certain kind of 
Silicon Valley-ish approach to uh, to personal development and and self help reflects something similar, right? This is the time of the this is the era of the gig economy. We don't nobody has um, depend on a on a job for their whole life anymore. And in this kind of context, there's something very appealing about the idea that we kind of don't need each other in fundamental ways uh, and can just sort of go it alone through the power of power of thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, sets up the next question, you know, Nor- so Norman Vincent Peale, who I'm sure whose work you're familiar with, you know, yeah. wrote this power, power of positive thinking book. And I remember listening to the Mary Trump, uh, you know, audio book about, you know, I think it was called the da- most dangerous man in the world. Uh, which is about Donald Trump. And, and apparently, you know, he was, you know, Donald Trump's pastor mm-hmm. uh, was actually the who officiated his first wedding. But it turns out the guy was entirely full of shit. Um, and so, you know, I wonder two things, you know, one, what was the the downside to the popularity of his work? Uh, and, you know, as a journalist, you probably have this really interesting lens on media and how it shapes the way we think about this stuff. Uh, so, you know, what is the because I mean, even, you know, people consuming content like this, I, I realize like I one of my friends actually said, he said, you know, self-help actually can diminish your self-esteem paradoxically mm-hmm. um, when you're sitting around reading this, because, you know, I think the, the quote, other quote that comes to mind, I remember Tony Robbins in one of his first programs, like dissatisfaction is a gem. I'm like, not really, because if you're walking around your life dissatisfied, then how are you ever going? You, every everything is basically an uphill battle. Right. Yes. And there's, there's all sorts of reasons why. Yeah, I, I think that, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, if you, if you set your expectations in such a way that you can only ever be, uh, that you, that, that you can either, you're either disappointed or you're at least not there yet, then there can never be any kind of contentment. I mean, I think it's important to say as well that there is something legitimately empowering at the, at the root of some of these things you know i was talking about the great depression um and you know this is the context after which books like how to win friends and influence people start to get um start to get popular i'm i'm forgetting the dates i think norman vincent peale is a little later than all of that yeah um you know this this it's not worthless to say to people who are on some level uh feeling powerless that that you can that you can take, uh, that you can seize the initiative in your life. I mm-hmm. think the 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 problem is the various sort of reasons why this always turns into totally counterproductive, uh, overpromising. And I've read that uh, the Mary Trump book too, and I think that um, you know there's a very she she gives a very good sort of it's basically a psychoanalytic reading of of, of why Donald Trump is the way he is, why he considers um, uh, professional failure prospect of professional failure to be uh synonymous with like death and uh mm-hmm. and you know what kinds of unconditional love were withheld from him as a as a small child if you go too far down this road you suddenly start mm-hmm. empathizing with him and it's a very scary experience yeah. but but you know everyone was a everyone was a three-year-old once and they were either being uh, accepted and loved by the people around them or they were being sent the message that love was dependent on certain kinds of uh, uh external achievements and it would be withheld if they uh if they didn't do them so um yeah. i think that's all it all hangs uh together but yeah i think also there's now tons of research i write a little bit about it in in the book uh that uh 
if you've got low self-esteem and you start saying sort of unrealistically positive uh, affirmations to yourself about Uh how actually you're incredibly rich and not uh, and not feeling uh, and not feeling depressed or whatever that um that this sets up a conflict a mental conflict where you just start sort of arguing against yourself and uh, you end up feeling uh, you end up feeling even worse yeah yeah. So let's talk about being powerless because, you know, your people are, are hearing this at the very beginning of the new year. And of course, people feel like they have this sort of blank slate. And one of the things you say early on in the book is for a civilization so fixated on achieving happiness, we seem remarkably incompetent at the task. One of the best known general findings of the science of happiness has been the discovery that countless that the countless advantages of modern life have done so little to lift our collective mood. And so I want to start with, by looking at depression first. I uh, you know, one, how do you end up in this situation? Like, how do people get out of this sort of depths of depression and the darkness of it? I mean, it, it took me, you know, three years. It was, you know, reading books, some of which did absolutely nothing, which made me feel worse about my life mm-hmm. um, because there was this constant comparison. But, you know, if a person listening to this is depressed, you know, based on your work, what is the first thing that you would say to them? Well, bearing in mind that I, I am fortunate not to have personal experience of severe depression. I'm more of an, I'm on the anxiety end of the scale, so I can probably talk yeah. more about having that. But, but, uh, but I have, but you know, I think um, I, a few of us have, have no uh, experience. Um, and also given that I think the answer to the question really is to seek out, you know, good therapy and counseling and, uh, and uh, not to rely on, uh, random the thoughts of random journalists but but with all that uh to one side i I think what's interesting here is that uh it it seems pretty clear that um the sort of the 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 kind of positive thinking that 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 sees depression fundamentally as 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 a matter of feeling sad which you should then try to alter by changing your thoughts into happy ones is uh is kind of doomed to fail not just because you can't make yourself feel happy, but also because depression seems to be more sort of abs- a feeling of the absence of meaning than the absence mm. of happiness. And that actually all sorts of approaches that that sort of start by acknowledging that negative feelings are present, that they're not going to kill you, that they are negative, that they can't just be changed with the click of a finger into positive ones. Um, these are the ones that sort of, these are the approaches that, that, that leave you then capable of, you know, taking the next step. I think the ones that say, yeah, I do feel this way. And yeah, I do think that things are not how I want them to be in my life. And I'm not trying to sort of pretend otherwise. I think that's what acceptance really means, right? Not resignation to your circumstances, like you're never going to change them, but acceptance Uh that things are as they are, uh, right now. and that you know there's no need to try to uh pretend that they that they aren't uh, say one other thing on that i've been uh really uh helped in my life by um a, a question that came comes up in the work of james hollis who's a jungian psychotherapist whose books i would definitely uh re- recommend and he he recommends asking this question you know what direction in life right now would would enlarge me rather than diminish me. In other words, not what would make me happier uh, because that's yeah. very difficult to tell and it usually doesn't work. But but to connect to this question of meaning and to 
and to find, uh, you know, in whatever emotional situation you find yourself, something, just the next thing that you could do, however small, that would be kind of, that, that would that would make you into a slightly, that would be growth focused instead of, instead of sort of uh, diminishment uh, focused. Yeah. And it might be kind of, it might be kind of nothing. I mean, I know, um, uh, I think there are good reasons why uh, Jordan Peterson is very controversial and has a lot of and has a lot of critics. But I think that that focus on you know just do one thing. If you if you can if the only thing you can do right now is to like make your bed and then mm-hmm. then reward yourself with a with a you know uh, chocolate treat for having done that, you know that counts that is that is real that sort of what is the one right next right thing that you could do right now um and that doesn't connect you to questions of like how can i make myself full of good cheer like that's not relevant yeah. there right it's it's like what is the next step in the darkness rather than uh, uh and it, and it, yeah it absolutely might be that you can load the dishwasher or if you're not in yeah. that kind of rut it might be that you can you know answer some a bunch of emails so you're no longer so overwhelmed by email you know whatever you know it depends where it depends where it finds you Mm. so you may be the one person who might be able to give me an answer to this question because um i've asked it to numerous people and nobody seems to have an answer that i'm satisfied with so i i looked at personal (laughs) development yeah exactly (laughs) not not at all um it's just based on your perspective i feel like you might have some insight on this that nobody has been able to give me but you know like if you look at sort of a typical personal development effort whether it's a book a seminar you know whatever it is or a course you know i mean and you see this across the board uh you get sort of three groups of people right the person who would have gotten the result whether they went to that thing or not or did that thing or not because that's just how they're wired the person who actually that thing becomes a catalyst for their change and then you have you know sort of this um other group which is basically people who go from seminar to seminar book to book like i always said you know if i actually implemented all of the advice i've received from my podcast guests and the books that are on my shelf i'd be a billionaire with a six-pack and a harem of women and i'm none of those things you know um so like why do we get those three groups because i I feel like that third group is literally the one that builds the industry yeah it's very interesting i mean i i i do think there is some there are charlatans, right? There is real cynicism, and the Werner Erhardt quote that you mentioned sort of sort of points to that. There are people who are who are just out to kind of, you know, you make a big promise, but you can't completely deliver on it because that would be a disaster for your business model, right? I mean, you've got to keep people yeah. um, dissatisfied. But I don't think that cynicism and charlatanism completely explains that problem. One thing that I think certainly explains the problem, and that I have. I feel like I have been, I've been there completely as a reader and consumer of this stuff is this mistake. And we could talk about where the mistake comes from, but this mistake that new information is the thing that is going to make all the difference. I am still to this day on some level, completely convinced that the next sort of productivity book I read is going to provide the specific <laughs> system, right? The specific system for organizing my to-do list that is going to make all the difference to my productivity and creativity. And 
And naturally, if, if what you think is that more information is is what you need, then then that's a very understandable reason to consume more books and courses and, and everything. Uh, but you can see where I'm going with this. I think that you know, very often yeah. it isn't uh, new information that we need. And in fact, uh, probably the most important things that anyone can do to sort of build a more meaningful uh, life, uh, they already like absolutely know. Um, on an intellectual level and it is a question of finding different ways of um of sort of making that uh, making it a habit uh making it a sort of an, a perspective shift on the level of one's emotions uh sort of learning to kind of let this idea seep into you but it's not like you need mm-hmm. a new idea um like either of us right now could list the sort of five six things that people ought to have in their lives to feel uh as fulfilled and happy as possible whether it's you know uh good good social uh relationships physical exercise time spent in nature you know enough sleep it's uh it's it's not it's not hard <laughs> except it is yeah <laughs> introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, you know, I, I want to ask you a question about spiritual bypassing. So, I, you know, I, I moved to Colorado from a town called Encinitas, you know, and I remember the first time, you know, first few weeks I moved there, I was there because I was a surfer, but it turns out that it's like this just, you know, um, it's like the mecca of New Age bullshit. 
uh, and which I, you know, that's what I refer to it as. Although my my roommates like, dude, even your own work falls into that category. I was like, yes, I'm aware of this, <laughs> yes, but yes. I mean, it really is like to the point where I remember the first time I saw, you know, the Conscious Community Facebook group, which I'm sure I'll probably piss off a few people if they're members of that. I remember I called my friend Shrubby and I said, "Can you explain to me what it means to be conscious?" Because based on the posts that I'm reading here, I think these people are out of fucking touch with reality. <laughs> um, so that is my understanding. But like, so you know, you get a lot of this new age spiritual bypassing. Uh, you know, people are like, oh, crystals and candles. Like I literally said, you know, people are like what's Encinitas like? I'm like, it's a town full of white people who wish they were Indian. Um, they're more Indian than I am. You know, like they all have Sanskrit tattoos. They're vegan. And I'm like, oh, let's go eat at a steakhouse. Like that's just weird to me. So why is it that we, we have this sort of mix up of causation and correlation? Like you see this, like you literally see people who post, you know, pictures of gods of religions that they don't actually know anything about and somehow associate it with. And of course, like, you know, hundreds of comments follow and people are like, oh, yeah, of course. I'm like, wait a minute. You're not even a person who knows anything about this religion. Um, so where do we get this sort of mix up of causation and correlation with new age bullshit and success? That's really interesting. And spiritual bypassing, I, your listeners may be well familiar, but it seems like it might be worth a quick uh, sort of definition. The idea of, uh, for me anyway, the idea of using spiritual practices and this idea that you're going to sort of become one with a cosmic consciousness to kind of avoid slightly more mundane personal like issues that you probably should get probably should be talking to a therapist about or um or you know at least you know uh paying some attention to rather than just sort of thinking that you can uh, bypass it all by by merging with the the universal and then i think that's very i think that's very prevalent i think it's more prevalent than people realize i think a lot of american anglo sort of meditation culture is that actually uh and i think it has been for me in the past you know this idea that like i don't need to worry about all the sort of issues and hang-ups and neuroses i could be working out because what i'm going to do is just uh you know um transcend my ego and then it, none, of, none of it's going to matter um but then you also raise this other sort of related point of like is the idea that that by having the same like crystals that look the same as the as the person who has uh achieved some measure of of um spiritual peace i'm going to get it from the from the crystal or from sort of uh, adopting the the lifestyle i mean i think you know that the, it's okay to some extent to adopt whatever lifestyle you want the big issue there of course is that is that it becomes you know any idea that you are pursuing one of these spiritual paths that involves at least loosening the grip of the ego is kind of undermined by the idea that what you're doing is building up uh, a really firm and forceful ego as a sort of super spiritual person um as someone who is like you know i'm i'm so uh, uh you know if, if you're so sort of uh, um you're so sort of past you've gone so far beyond the self that you have to keep decorating yourself with expensive new clothes and trinkets, you know, something, something's, something's gone wrong. And, uh, the sort of the meditation teachers and people who I know personally, who impress me the most, uh, they're not like that. They're living, you know, in yeah. many cases, very ordinary looking, uh, lives because like learning to be part of the ordinary world is on some level is like the whole challenge, right? Instead of trying to find a sort of aesthetic uh, path yeah. out of it. Yeah. I'm not sure well, that Boulder is a good move if you want to avoid 
if you want to leave. Um, <laughs> well, no, see, the funny thing is, well, for, fortunately here we're, <laughs> we're quarantined, so we're not, and, and here they have this sort of bizarre balance of sort of the, you know, wealthy entrepreneurs combined with, you know, Naropa University. So we right. have, you know, at least some semblance of balance here, um, you know, and I'm sure I've probably pissed off everybody who lives in Encinitas <laughs> and lost some subscribers because of this, but you know, that's the price you pay for having an opinion. Um, so let, let's talk about the, you know, two, two ideas. You talk about ceaseless optimism and hedonic adaptation. And so one of the things you say is ceaseless optimism about the future only makes a greater shock when things go wrong by fighting to maintain only positive beliefs about the future. The positive thinker ends up being less prepared, more acu- acutely distressed when things eventually happen that he can't persuade himself to believe are good. And you go, you know, you go on to say that psychologists have long agreed that one of the greatest enemies of human happiness is hedonic adaptation, the predictable and frustrating way in which any new source of pleasure we obtain, whether it is as minor as a new piece of electronic gadgetry or as major as a marriage, swiftly gets relegated to the backdrop of our lives. Now, I, the, you know, the, these two things, sentences in particular struck me because I've been trying to find an answer to this question of, of is there a way to get off of the hedonic treadmill and can we find a balance between fulfillment and ambition? Because, you know, I, I think that you have to have some level of self-interest to achieve anything. And yet we've seen what happens when self-interest gets taken too far. Um, you know, we live in a world that's the byproduct of self-interest taken to the point of diminishing returns from, you know, our, our leadership in you know, governments to our, you know, CEOs of companies. Uh, so how, is, there, is there any way off of this hedonic treadmill? It's a really good question. And, um, you know, I think part of your question gets at this idea that you wouldn't necessarily want to completely get off it, right? I mean, this idea that you make your life and the lives of those people you care about better uh, through a certain amount of, you know, self-interest, uh, I think is, I think is a true one and a good one. I, I don't think I would be a better person if my, if I didn't want to make my life situation or my family's life situation uh, on a sort of constant process of I- improvement. But the, but the treadmill is the idea that, you know, in many, many cases, if you do that by moving into a bigger house, you'll just forget about how pleasurable it is to live in a bigger house. The one that always I know happened in my life very clearly was that I sort of, I like upgraded the the quality of the coffee I was consuming. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's just like, I have to have that quality of coffee, uh, which is kind of sad, right? Because I, I, firstly, it's more expensive. And secondly, I, I don't get the, the special pleasure of thinking, oh, that's really good coffee. Um, so the first thing to say is there are there are some curious exceptions in the research, right? So so one thing that uh, you do not expect uh, to find, but apparently is true, is that uh, people who have cosmetic surgery, uh, which in general we tend to disdain as a particularly kind of superficial <laughs> route to happiness, that doesn't seem to lose its um, uh, it, it, its capacity to sort of lift their spirits. They don't seem to adapt wow. back down to being depressed about it. So I don't know what that's going on there, whether it's just like feels so fundamental to yourself when you like change what your face looks like or something that, uh, that, it, uh, that it doesn't have that effect. I think the, the, real, uh, the real answer for, for, for most of us, apart from getting Botox, is, um, is to do with a shift in perspective, right? The reason that... Um, uh, gratitude is so championed by sort of people working in this field. Um, I'm not particularly good at uh, sort of 
keeping a gratitude diary or anything, but I think it's good and you should do it if you can, um, is because it has the effect of sort of calling your attention to things in your life that are delivering, that are capable of delivering uh, well-being and good feeling and that you've forgotten about, right? I mean, if you actually yeah. go through the exercise of realizing that like the tree in our backyard in the winter looks to my eyes looking at it now looks to my eyes really beautiful um it's like oh oh okay i've actually taken myself through the process of of seeing that it sort of pops out uh again and um and its role as a part of the backdrop of my life is at least temporarily um changed into the to the to the foreground um and sort of anything i think anything that sort of uh shifts your perspective is going to have that effect i'm i'm often struck uh, i know other people have this as well right if you travel somewhere obviously we don't travel anywhere uh, at the moment but right. if you if you if you travel somewhere firstly if you travel somewhere where people's lives are a lot worse than yours you you have some gratitude returning to your own life but even if you go somewhere uh, kind of even if you go on some sort of like luxury vacation there's always something to me anyway about getting back home which is like oh great i li- i like this home obviously if you don't like your home this particular suggestion is not going to work but there's something to do with shifting your location shifting your perspective i think just to be totally clichéd that uh, the sort of changing your attention that is wrought by doing by, by meditation uh generally does also help you sort of see things uh yeah. more clearly in that way, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, it reminds me, you know, I, I was in India with my, my cousin, you know, I went there for a surf trip and we, and we took a trip up to the mountains and, you know, my cousin was t- telling me, you know, the guy who drove us, he said, look, you get to make in one hour what this guy probably will not make in two to three years, you know, as a, as a public professional speaker. And I, I realized, I was like, wow, this guy literally, he does a nine hour drive up and down the mountain, up, you know, to the mountains of India four to five times a week. And these are not like pleasant drives. The roads are treacherous. Mm-hmm. Like every, you know, one possibly involves death. The guy has no upward mobility. And when I remember seeing that thinking, I was like, wow, every time I think about complaining about something in my life, I always want to remember this guy, you know, to the point where I was like, I need to get a picture of this guy. Cause I had a picture of me and him and I wanted that on my wall as a reminder. And now you've reminded me to make sure I have that um, framed and printed. It's like, who is this random guy? I was like, well, there's a story about this. Yes. Um, and, that that always stayed with me. Uh, so, you know, we're at the beginning of a new year. Of course, you know, everybody talks about, you know, setting goals, New Year's resolutions, which never work, you know, that kind of thing. Like literally everybody's mind is on, oh, I'm going to become the you know next you know best version of myself because it's the beginning of a new year. But you have probably the most contrarian view I've ever heard, which is why I wanted to begin the year with you. <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I think that, you know, the person who you mentioned, Stephen Shapiro, is also going to be a guest. But you actually say two things here that really struck me. One is about attachment. So let me but let me mention the quote on goals first. You said, whether or not we use the word goals, we're forever making plans upon desired outcomes and goal-free living simply makes for happier humans. That flies in the face of probably everything that everybody who's listening to this has ever heard. So expand on that for me. I'm going to expand by immediately backing away from the from that, from that claim <laughs> and saying that saying that I mean what what I think I unpack in the book as goal free living is it's certainly not having no goal in any sense of the term because as kind of human organisms we're we're goal directed through the day even if it's just to sort of you know eat eat some food and get some sleep uh mm-hmm. and but beyond that i think that um uh you know goals in the conventional uh 
self-help personal development sense of the term can be absolutely important in sort of uh in in a life i think what i'm what i'm trying to say is that there's a kind of attachment to goals which 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 automatically places fulfillment of them in the future for one thing it means you can you know you spend your whole life struggling to achieve things which if you then achieve them bring pleasure for about a day and then you have to set up the new set of goals so i think what i what i think and to a limited extent i've moved on a little bit maybe from from when i wrote that as well like i don't want to say i can't change my view here is that um, yeah i think the well, the way to think about this is goals as and plans in general right fundamentally as present moment statements of intent and ways to help you organize your present moment and today in the most sort of promising and fulfilling way not these kind of shining things on a on a hill that uh, you're constantly waiting to get to and there are a whole lot of other problems with that stance in life i think in terms of like how it distorts the other values in your life etc cetera, etc cetera. but but just as just as sort of navigational tools for bringing into being the best stuff that you can and the best feelings and the best product, whatever you're doing today. Um, And that's what I increasingly try to do in my life. I don't think that like sort of creative visions are a bad thing at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Things that to sort of steer by, but I also kind of don't want my life to be about like getting to my deathbed and for five minutes being great. I did it well. And then like keeling over. Um, I, I I want the fulfillment to be, uh, an aspect of the, of every day of the process as it were. So, I mean, I can, sorry, I was going to say the new year's resolutions, uh, yeah, please. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem here is that, um, I mean, setting aside the fact that New Year's Day always struck me as a terrible day to begin anything because you were probably up till like <laughs> three, exactly. three in the morning drinking, right? But uh, that won't be the case this year, I suppose. Um, uh, you well, know, I mean, we are at home. I've been doing that almost every night. Okay. I, I did that last night. Just kidding. But, you know. till one, of, one will have been up till 3 a.m. drinking at home alone. Yeah. Yes. No, exactly. I think that the, um, the, the, the real problem with that is the way that it encourages this kind of belief in a total fresh start that is actually really contrary to um successful personal change which is absolutely possible and this is not a this is not the advice to like give up and just uh conclude that you can't be fitter or happier or more skilled or whatever it is but it's this idea that like there's something very philosophically odd right about saying i'm going to be a completely new self this year and yet the person you're trying to change is also the person who's doing the changing. It's kind of it's kind of circular in a really kind of confusing way. And it also just sets the bar so high that, you know, the first day you fail at some particular uh, resolution, um, you you go on the usual sort of yo-yo cycle, right? You end up sort of like calling the whole thing off and uh and and not doing it at all. I think that um a lot of this is kind of anxiety driven. People look at their lives and they say, look, I am not as fit as I should be. I'm not as happy in my romantic life as I should be. I'm not as successful in my work as I should be. So I've got to change it all at once because I can't bear the thought of like accepting that some of these areas are going to be suboptimal for a while, while I focus and work on one specific area. And what I've come to believe really is that, you know, the whole challenge here, actually, a, a big part of the challenge of all successful personal change is actually 
withstanding and tolerating the anxiety and the discomfort of knowing about all the things you're not changing, right? So it's yeah. about saying like, look, this next couple of months is about getting a sort of basic exercise routine going and just being okay with the fact that I'm not addressing these other three or four massive life areas that feel like so urgent, um, knowing that I will get to them uh, in their turn, in sequence, you know, and, and doing mm-hmm. this in a serial fashion. And for someone like me and probably you and a lot of people, that's really hard to do precisely because <laughs> yeah. like you're so into the kind of transformation kind of idea. But I think once you see that that is a kind of, there's a kind of anxiety that's driving that usually. And, and actually, you know, it's, it's probably kind of fine if I, uh, don't, um, change up my, uh, exercise goals for January and February while I work on getting my personal finances in order. Like that's probably in the long run at the end of the year, I'm going to have, uh, attended to far more, uh, stuff that needed my attention in life that way than if I had had this kind of weird plan that I was going to magically find 10 more hours every day from January the 1st to, to do, in which yeah. to do all of these things. So let's, let's talk about two, two, two other things here. Um, one is this whole idea of these like wildly ambitious goals, right? Like becoming the next Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Beyonce. Um, you may have read his book. Uh, Will Storr, who's another journalist, I believe in the UK, yeah. um, wrote a book called Selfie, How We've Become So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. And he said that, you know, we're creating this cultural narrative of, you know, you don't have worth if you're not going to be the next, you know, whatever Steve Jobs. And he said, and it's so toxic, uh, you know, and people yet have these, you know, very, very ambitious goals. Uh, also, you know, to, to piggyback on that, I've had uh, Elon Musk's ex-wife, Justine here. She's a good friend of mine. And we were talking about uh, extreme success because she wrote this really long answer on a Quora piece that, you know, some some kid had asked the question, how can I become great? Like, you know, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, and, and Richard Branson. And, you know, Justine probably has a view into this that most of us don't. And, you know, her view on this was really, really eye-opening. She said, people don't realize, like, these accomplishments almost come at the cost of everything else in your life. Um, and she said, I don't want to get all deterministic here, but I don't think that this is something that can be learned. It's something that, you know, is, you know, you're born that way. And I don't think the idea that, you know, you're born as smart as Elon Musk and you can't become that is something people ever want to hear in the world of personal development. But, um, you know, you have, you know, a view into this that a lot of us don't based on your research. And then, you know, on top of that, you know, couple that with the sort of, you know, vision board mental masturbation that also happens with the law of attraction. <laughs> so what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I think it's so interesting because I do think that, um, well, I have sort of three thoughts, and I'll try to sort of uh, keep them uh, keep them concise. But um, w- w- one is, yeah, I think if you look at the lives of a lot of these people who we idolize, you see that the sacrifices they have wittingly or unwittingly made are, are huge ones. You know, this is the there's a story in my book about somebody who sort of you know had set out to become a multimillionaire by age I don't know 35 or something. And had achieved it, but it wasn't really success. If you've sort of you've ruined your health and you've alienated your whole family and your your partner's left you and your kids don't like you, you know, it's like at some point that wasn't actually what you intended. And I think you see that pattern sometimes. Um, I think the other point is that uh, maybe this is my particular psychological issues talking, but but I do think that if you look at a lot of these people, you see um a, a kind of 
I'm not saying that it's bad that they achieved what they did or that have innovated in the ways that they have, but it's been done as a way to sort of meet some kind of psychological need, right? It's not um it's not because they just were sort of hanging around and thought like, oh, it'd be really cool to like do some cool things. It's like they they needed to like fill some void in themselves or something. And I think a lot of people who overachieve, become celebrities, all sorts of things are struggling to fill some void. It is amazing. I haven't got the figures in my head, but it's amazing what proportion of recent American presidents have had absent fathers. And you're just like, whoa, something interesting is going on there that fuels that kind of, the the kind of level of energy and discipline and struggle that you need to, to, to reach those kinds of of heights, which is none of this is to criticize because we all have our hangups and our needs and our like holes inside that we're trying to fill. But I think it is useful to remember that um, in certain ways, you know, the person who is content with being ordinary is arguably sort of more psychologically healthy than the person who um, who absolutely oh, yeah. needs to sort of pull off these big goals. And I think that leads to my final point on this, which is the perspective shift I'd like to suggest, which is, you know, it will be interesting to look at, to, for anybody who's in the position of really wanting to try and pull off that kind of stratospheric success to sort of say, well, okay, what am I, what are my real motivations here? Why do I think I need this in order to be happy? Could I, could the key here actually be to be becoming more uh, sort of easy and okay with being, ordinary i don't say not successful but successful in a more sort of modest and achievable way and here's the twist right not just because probability dictates that you're not going to be the next elon musk so so it's (laughs) useful to get your get your mind straight on that but also because i actually think that the more okay you are with the life you have and with ordinariness and with not being a super achiever the more sort of freed up psychologically you are to actually create amazingly impressive things, to really make a difference in some field, perhaps even to become uh, a sort of one of these sort of stratospheric, uh, you know, gods of the civilization. I don't know. But just, you know, to, to think like, okay, my life is, I'm, I'm good enough as I am. I'm good enough if I don't ever do um, any of these things. And therefore, it's all extra, right? It's all like a, it's like a wonderful game that you can then play, sort of launch some cool projects and connect with some interesting people and take a few wow. risks, as opposed to like, I've got to, on some subconscious level, I've got to do this or I'm not worthy to be a person on planet Earth. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I feel that as an author, like it was this experience I had, you know, like my publisher's portfolio, which, you know, the other authors there are Simon Sinek, Seth Godin and Ryan Holiday, you know, all of who've sold millions of books. And I remember thinking I'm like the redheaded step, redheaded stepchild of this imprint, um, you know, and that it took me a while to get my head around that. So, OK, you know what? I probably not going to be the next, you know, Ryan Holiday, Mark Manson, you know, whoever. And I think that when I finally came, made some peace with that. I, I was able to get back to work. Right, right. And then maybe become one of, you know, that, that's the other thing. Yeah, I just think it's like, I, I totally see that. And I obviously I'm partly just talking about a journey I've been on here too. I think, you know, I spent a lot of my young adulthood thinking that I had to do certain things. Otherwise I kind of wasn't, it was, I wasn't, you know, I hadn't justified my existence. And uh, actually it's when you're not sort of tightly gripping on your goals like that, because you know that actually you're fine as you are 
you don't need those things for validation. I'm not saying I've completed this journey to spiritual enlightenment, <laughs> but I've made a bit yeah, of progress. Um, yeah, right. Um, you, you are freer to just like, hey, you know, send that thing to that person at that company. Who knows? Like, you know, there's, it doesn't matter if uh, yeah. if the if this suggestion for a really exciting project gets turned down. It doesn't matter if this publisher doesn't want this book. Like, it, do, it does matter on some level. Got to make a living, but it doesn't matter on the sort of like, am I allowed to, have I earned my place on the planet level? And that makes you freer and easy. It makes it easier to, to, mm -hmm. to send those things and to put yourself forward in those ways, I think. Yeah. So I, I want to come full circle. Uh, you know, I, I realized there's a question I'd mentioned at the beginning about journalism and, and media. You know, you're a journalist who's talking to a group of people on a media platform. Uh, and as a journalist, how do you think about you know, the role that our media consumption plays in our happiness and becoming more conscious about that. Uh, I mean, even this, like I had a listener once and I have shared the story before uh, who emailed me. He said, you know, I am sorry to tell you this. He's like, but the people on your show are so amazing. They're making me feel horrible about myself. And I replied back and said, I can relate. I was like, I've been there. So I don't take any offense to what you just said. Um, but you as a journalist, I mean, you're shaping perception as am I as a media creator. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about this a lot. I think about it primarily with regard to sort of like the news, the political and international and national news. Um, you're raising another sort of very closely connected point, I think, about how, you know, people in my or your position, by trying to share what's most useful, end up inadvertently giving this uh, uh, idea that our lives are sort of unbroken accomplishment i don't i don't think i've done that in this interview i think possibly the opposite but you know what i mean it's like if i if i find a piece of uh if i find some if i have some sort of useful insight and i write about it and then next time i'm writing i do the same someone who only knows me through my writing thinks all i do in my life is like live in, <laughs> live in this world of deep wisdom and um and uh you know sometimes i get wonderfully sort of almost embarrassingly nice uh emails from readers about uh about how great i am and once or twice i have shared them with my wife who is, finds it absolutely hilarious because she has to <laughs> she has to you know put up with all the other sides of yeah. uh, a normal human and so i think there is that risk just in the way that media works especially you know uh these days we have to sort of you know we want to try to make stuff that people that people that, that inspires people and that they want and then you get this weird effect. It's a bit like the old thing about like, you know, people only post their vacations and their weddings on Facebook. So you end up thinking all your friends yeah. have uh, are just on vacations and at weddings all the time because they don't post about just being sort of bored. Although they sort of do that too. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the fact that I'm, the thing that I'm really thinking about now, especially as I move away from, like I don't really do news type journalism anymore, um, is I'm re I think there are some very unhealthy incentives operating in the sort of attention economy on newspapers. And I don't just mean like bad publications that pump out uh, disinformation, of which there are many, but even very reputable, good newspapers, the, the most reputable ones, um, who are just trying to inform. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why they are unavoidably um, incentivized to create uh, a, 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 a more alarming picture of the world than is necessarily right, um, a scarier uh, picture of the world than is than is right. I've noticed the, even during coronavirus, which, by the way, I think is a desperately serious 
crisis and a catastrophe. I'm certainly not someone who thinks it's like, shouldn't make a big deal of it. But even these things that are legitimately very, very serious, there's an effect in the media to sort of spread even more gloom and despair than is necessarily justified at any one time. And again, I don't think it's because the journalists are cynics. I think it's because the the structure of how this is happening now and the attention economy is so is what it is. And so I think more and more we have a kind of person that part of self-help now, I feel like, or the sort of responsibility we have to ourselves is is really figuring out how we manage our connection to to all of that. I wrote a piece uh, a year ago now about like this weird way that so many people seem to kind of inhabit the news cycle. I, I can't even express it any other way. They sort of live inside the news. They, they, um, uh, and I've done it a bit too, right? It's like, it's not that they just think yeah. politics is important. It's like they think politics is where their life really is. And then their house and their job and their family and their friends, that's kind of a bit secondary. That's not like their real life somehow. That's got to be unhealthy <laughs> because you don't have, because you're sort of deliberately identifying with a realm where you lack control and you lack the ability to sort of make a significant difference on your own. So I don't know, I feel like there's some, there's, I might try to write more about it, but like, you know, there's, we really need to think about how, how to sanely relate to the media today as a kind of, you know, it's like something kids should be being taught in school or something. Wow. This has been Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I am so thrilled that I got to to have a chat with you about this. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. This has just been so fascinating. Um, before I let you go, I know that, so I have one final question, but I know you said you have a new book coming out. I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to talk about it because of course we'll have you back um, when the new book comes out. So what's the deal with the new book? That would be great. The The book is, um, it's going to be sort of next uh, late spring, early summer that it's, that it's out. Um, it's called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And uh, it's a sort of, um, I suppose one way of thinking about it is it's an attempt to um, help us get rid of some unnecessarily stressful ideas about time and how we use our limited time on the planet. And also then to look at how, what are sort of um, some, some more constructive ways. I tried to sort of take the idea of time management, but then take it like really seriously, like stupidly seriously in a way, like the, how did how to use the time that you have on the planet, not uh, mm-hmm. not just sort of uh, you know uh, what's usually meant by by time management. So uh, cool, that's I'm coming looking out, forward uh, to that next year. Yeah, great. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Wow, that's an interesting question. I suppose that it is the same question. I suppose that it's the question to which I would answer that that um, there is a sense in which uh, our job in life, I think, is to sort of become more completely who we are. It's a kind of a paradoxical thought, but it has quite a lot of a lot of people sort of think have written about it in this way. And I kind of feel like there are certain kind of people I know in my life and who I sort of aspire to become who sort of, I can't put it any other way. They, they more fully embody themselves and who they were and what they came here for. Uh, if that makes sense than, than others. And I think that to me is the sort of, is, is perhaps uh, a, a, a criterion that answers your question or maybe not. 
Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> as I said, this has been absolutely wonderful, amazing, insightful, hilarious, thought provoking. Um, I'm so glad that we get to kick off the year with your wisdom. I just thought it was, you know, the right you are the right person to kick this year off with, just based on kind of where my thought process has has gone over the year. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, um, your books, and everything that you're up to? My website is oliverberkman.com. That's B-U-R-K-E-M-A-N.com. And I have there a, um, a twice monthly email called The Imperfectionist, which I just launched a couple of months ago. I would uh, love people to subscribe to. And I'm on Twitter at Oliver Berkman as well. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.